Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be covering the case of Nadia Kajuji in Ottawa, Canada, and Mark Drybro in Coventry, England. Let's get right to it. In September of 2007, Nadia Kajuji started her freshman year of college at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Nadia was 18 years old, and according to her brother Mark, as he spoke to NBC News, Nadia had dreams of becoming a lawyer and eventually a judge, and maybe even getting involved in politics. Nadia always excelled in school and took academics very seriously. Her family had no doubt that she'd do just fine at Carleton, even though it was roughly a four and a half hour drive from the campus from where Nadia had grown up in Brampton. According to her family, that little bit of distance might have been by design. You see, Nadia's parents, Mohamed Kajuji and Deborah Chevalier, had always been protective of her. Not in an overbearing way or anything like that. It's just that they both loved her and wanted what was best for her. But at 18, Nadia was ready to get out there to see the world and with her newfound independence, it seems she just didn't want her parents to be able to drop in to check on her all the time. So Carleton University was the perfect distance. Far enough away she felt she was on her own and close enough she could still visit pretty much whenever she wanted to. It was the best of both worlds. And at first, things were great. Her neighbor at the dorm, Crystal, recalled to NBC News that Nadia was a very happy person. She was, in Crystal's word, gung-ho, smart, and strong. As she got to know Nadia, she could see that she was destined to do incredible things. But as the months ticked on, things changed for Nadia. The girl who was once so bright and cheery slowly became sad and withdrawn. It was evident in the video diary she kept, which she ran under an alias. The videos were later obtained by CBC. At first, they were fun, upbeat videos of Nadia trying on different clothes, putting on a mini fashion show in her closet. And then, as time passed, Nadia began talking about her struggles with depression and suicidal thoughts. She talked about her breakup and how she was struggling. You see, Nadia had broken up with her longtime boyfriend and entered a new relationship with someone else. According to her mom, Nadia was head over heels in love with the new guy, but there were issues. Nadia confided in her mom that she had gotten pregnant and had a miscarriage, and she was struggling with it all. After the miscarriage, that new relationship ended, which was another blow to Nadia, as she still cared for the guy deeply. Just after Christmas of 2007, she took to her video diary wearing a sleep mask, as she often did to obscure her identity, and talked about the whole ordeal, stating, I didn't want to get pregnant. I didn't choose to get pregnant. The condom broke. I took the morning after pill and it failed. So I was pregnant and had no choice in the matter. And then I miscarried, so I couldn't choose whether to keep the child or not keep the child. 
go through with the pregnancy, not go through with it. It was clear that Nadia was struggling, and things only continued to get worse, leading Nadia to reach out for professional help. In another video, she recounted a conversation with her doctor, Nadia stating, she asks, Have you been thinking about suicide? I said yes, I am depressed, I have postpartum mood disorder, clinical depression, and insomnia. So you yourself have thought about suicide? Yes, I've thought about suicide, what a shocker. Maybe I wouldn't be thinking about it if I could sleep and be happy. But no, you're unwilling to give me the medication to get me to sleep. It was apparent that though Nadia was seeing a doctor and a counselor, she didn't feel as if her concerns were being taken as serious as they should have been. Nadia went home for a visit in February of 2008, and her parents noticed that something was off. Her mom asked her about it, and Nadia told her that she was just tired and not feeling well. Her father, of course, noticed that Nadia seemed depressed as well and questioned her mom about what was going on. Deborah told him that she had briefly talked to their daughter about it and advised him not to push. She figured her daughter would talk to her about it when she was ready. She always had before, with the breakup and the miscarriage. She went back to school and soon her friends on campus began to notice that Nadia was slipping further into depression. Crystal told NBC News she would lock herself in her room and not come out. We would try and knock on her door, nothing. So I'd like call her and I knew she was in her room, so I'd call her. And she wouldn't pick up her phone, try to Facebook her, email her, and she just wouldn't come out. If she did come out, she was very different. She would look at you, but really wouldn't look at you. It was as if she wasn't there, like she wasn't the same person she was at the beginning. And then another entry appeared in her video blog. Nadia sat alone in the dark, describing to the camera that at this point, she was having trouble functioning at school. She said, I can't stand school. I can't even go to class. I'm going to lose this semester. And it seems like it would be easy, you know, just start going to class and doing your work. But I can't. I can barely string together a cohesive sentence or two. Like when I'm speaking, I can't put that down on paper and write a test or an essay. I can't function, and that was what the doctor said we should focus on, getting me to function. According to CBS News, on March 10, 2008, Nadia had an appointment to see her mental health counselor, but she never showed. Campus police were notified, and when security made their way to Nadia's dorm room, they found the door locked with music blaring. They made entry into the dorm room, but there was no sign of Nadia. Her roommate told officers that between 11.20 and 11.30 p.m. the night before, she heard Nadia's door close and that the music had been playing all night. Nadia's Facebook status had been updated that night as well. It read, Nadia will someday be loved. And in her room, it didn't appear anything had been disturbed. Nadia's cell phone and wallet were still there and it looked as if she had just left momentarily and would be back any second. But she wasn't. Two entire days passed before Nadia's parents back in Brampton were notified that their daughter was missing. The call came on March 13th from security officers at the school. They asked Nadia's parents if she was with them. Of course she wasn't, and it was at this point that her parents were notified that Nadia hadn't been seen in roughly 48 hours. Nadia's father Mohammed immediately drove to Ottawa to search for his daughter. He was soon joined by his son and Nadia's older brother, Mark. 
Once they got to the campus, they began searching for Nadia, handing out flyers and walking through the knee-high snow. You see, just before Nadia vanished, there had been a blizzard in Ottawa, and 20 inches of snow had poured all over the region, which made what Nadia's family learned next all the more concerning. As it turned out, there were three items missing from Nadia's dorm room, her ID, her ice skates, and her winter coat. Her family was also informed just how much Nadia had been struggling with her mental health. They learned that at one point, Nadia's roommates had become concerned enough to call for help, telling security that they believed Nadia was suicidal, and on another occasion in the fall, Nadia had been taken from a restaurant by ambulance after she walked in holding a razor blade in her hand, saying, if somebody doesn't help me, I'm going to hurt myself. In the months before she disappeared, Nadia had cried out for help. But for whatever reason, she never told her family just how deeply she was struggling, and no one else had reached out to them either. However, through Nadia's computer, investigators soon learned that in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, there was someone Nadia had reached out to. The San Diego Union-Tribune reported that on March 1st, 2008, Nadia had gone online to a public internet suicide chat room. Apparently, back in 2008, there were thousands of these chat rooms around, where people who were contemplating suicide would chat about their feelings and what they were going through. However, sometimes these chats took a darker turn. Nadia had gone to the site and said that she wanted to end her life, but was afraid of failing. Days after being a member of the chat room, she was contacted by a user named Cami. Cami claimed she was a 31-year-old emergency room nurse from Minneapolis. She told Nadia that she had struggled with depression for 12 years and also planned to commit suicide. She talked sweet to young Nadia, calling her hun and ending her messages with virtual hugs. But the messages were deranged, to say the very least. Nadia told Cammie that she planned on ending her life, and Cammie suggested that the two of them entered a suicide pact, which they did. Nadia told Cammie that her plan was to jump off a bridge into the frozen river while wearing ice skates to make her death look like an accident, so it would be easier for her friends and family to accept. And Cammie told Nadia that she really thought she should just hang herself. With all her experience as a nurse, she advised Nadia that hanging was the most effective way to go. Cammie promised Nadia that if she would hang herself in front of her webcam, she would watch to make sure everything was done correctly. And after Nadia was gone, Cammie would then hang herself. Cammie then went on to describe the type of rope Nadia needed to get and offered to hop on the webcam to help her find a place in her apartment that would be best to do it. In the chats, Cammie solidified their suicide pact, telling Nadia that if her plan to jump didn't work that following Sunday, March 9th, that the two of them would go through with the pact on Monday. Nadia wrote, We are together in this. Cammie replied, Yes, I promise. Monday will be my day. Cammie continued on writing about feeling, quote, really suicidal, but wanting to wait and see if Nadia's jump was a success. Cammie wrote further, I'm just trying to help you do what is best for you, not me. According to an episode of Web of Lies, police in Ottawa traced Cammie's IP address to a home in Rice County, Minnesota. 
Officials made contact with the homeowner, who told them that the person Nadia had been communicating with, Cammy, must have been his daughter, but that everything was fine. His daughter was fine and there was nothing to worry about. But for Mohammed, everything wasn't fine. His 18-year-old daughter was missing, and so were her ice skates. After reading some of Nadia's messages, Muhammad knew in his heart his daughter was gone. But he held out the smallest sliver of hope that maybe by some miracle he was wrong, and he continued to search. He, along with other family members, searched sometimes for up to 18 hours a day in negative 20-degree weather. Many times he completely broke down crying and pleading with God to bring his little girl back. The police were out searching as well and focused much of their efforts on the Rideau River, which of course was frozen at the time, but unfortunately weeks passed without any signs of Nadia. The weather turned warmer and the ice began to melt. And then on April 20th, 2008, a kayaker found a body washed ashore on the bank of the Rideau River. The body was later identified as 18-year-old Nadia Kajuji. The coroner would later confirm that Nadia had taken her own life, and further that she had died of hypothermia. Police in Ottawa announced that there was no foul play, and that Nadia's death was nothing more than a tragic suicide. As you can imagine, this infuriated Nadia's family. I mean, the supposed nurse Cammie had coached and encouraged Nadia all along the way. Was there really going to be no accountability? What nobody knew just yet was that there was someone who did suspect foul play. In fact, she knew that there was something more foul at play than anyone could have imagined. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes life throws some crazy curveballs and it's hard to find your path forward. I know for me, just when I think I've got it all figured out, wham, something comes right out of left field and I feel stuck trying to decide what the next step moving forward is, whether it's my career, parenting, or anything else. It can be hard to take that next step. But therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your values is like anything else. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. Therapy empowers you to be the best version of yourself by learning positive coping skills, how to set healthy boundaries, and so much more. If you've been thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash least today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash least. More than 3,000 miles and an ocean away in Wiltshire, England, 64-year-old Celia Blay lived in a country home in Maiden Bradley with her husband. 
Celia was a retired teacher, amateur local historian, grandmother, horse enthusiast who had a horse named Rosie, and a small business making horse whips. And might I add, one hell of a gem of a human. According to Celia, as she spoke to the Daily Mail, it all began in the summer of 2006, when she got on the internet to chat with fellow academics and medieval history enthusiasts. By her own admission, Celia was not very computer savvy, which is part of what makes this story so incredible. Anyhow, back in 2006, Celia was feeling depressed over the loss of her parents. She was on the interweb scrolling around when she stumbled upon a suicide chat group. She noticed that one of the members of her history news group was also a member of the suicide group, so curiosity got the better of her, and she went to the site. Celia recalled to the outlet that at first, she was shocked that the site even existed, stating, Out of curiosity, I clicked on it, thinking, my goodness, they have news groups for people who want to kill themselves? I never knew such a thing existed. She went on to say, Although it was obviously a rather dark place, I was attracted to the philosophical discussions about life and death that were happening there. And although I wasn't suicidal, the people seemed to have a very deep understanding of some of the things that I was feeling. So Celia stayed in the group, and it wasn't long before she began to make friends. One of them being a 17-year-old girl from South America, who frequented the group regularly. According to Celia, again as she spoke to the Daily Mail, her new South American friend had very low self-esteem and Celia made it her mission to try and help her. Things were going well, it seemed, and Celia thought her friend was starting to understand that she was just depressed, and suicide wasn't the answer. It was as if she was finally turning a corner. That was until Celia opened an email from her young friend that read, I am going to kill myself at 4 o'clock on Friday. I have made a pact with another girl. The teenager told Celia that she'd been speaking with a Chinese-American nurse named Li Dao, and she had given her detailed instructions about how to hang herself. The young girl believed that she and Li Dao would die together, connected via webcam. Celia recalled to the outlet that it seemed to her that her friend wasn't convinced she wanted to go through with it, but she didn't want to let Li Dao down. Hours before Celia's friend intended to hang herself, news of several other packs due to take place at the same time started to spread across the message boards. And all of the suicide packs had been made with Lee Dow. It seems she was attempting to orchestrate a mass suicide for her own amusement. Celia said, Gradually, more and more people realized they had been duped and were basically just entertaining someone with their death. They were dreadfully upset. They felt like idiots. It's one thing to want to die, but let's face it. It's quite another to provide entertainment for a pervert. These people had put what little faith they had left in this person. As far as Celia knows, no one died that day, but she knew she needed to put a stop to this sick and twisted game. So Celia began speaking with other members, taking notes, and learning everything she could about Lee Dow. She discovered that whoever this person was, they went by several other aliases, including Falcon Girl and Cammy. The story was always generally the same. Falcon Girl, Cammy, Lee Dow, whoever she was at that particular moment, posed as a depressed nurse. 
She would seek out vulnerable people online and relate to them, telling them just how depressed she was. She told countless people that in her medical opinion, hanging was the best way to commit suicide. She would recount failed suicide attempts she claimed to have seen in the emergency room from people using other methods, and then tell a story about watching a young man hang himself, recounting to her new potential victim just how peaceful it was. After giving very detailed instructions, she would set up a time for her and her new victim to die together on webcam. Only when that time came, her webcam never worked. Learning all this, Celia went to her local police, but the police just kind of brushed her off. It appears they thought she was a little off her rocker. At one point, according to the Wiltshire Times, they actually called her husband and said, Mr. Blay, do you know where your wife is and what she's doing? Mr. Blay told the outlet. They were checking up on her because they probably thought she was a nutter. But Celia was far from being a nutter. That's a fun little word, isn't it? Anyhow, Celia was persistent and determined, and so she continued her own investigation into who this person was. And like I mentioned before, she wasn't exactly Mark Zuckerberg with a computer, so she enlisted the help of her son, who taught her a few things. Years went by, years with Celia Blade documenting absolutely everything she could about this person. She was able to convince more than 30 people to hand over all their communications with Lee Dow, a.k.a. Falcon Girl, a.k.a. Cammie, with the promise that she would not reveal the true identities of those who had been in contact with this online persona. Of those people, some of them were children. According to Celia, one of the girls was under 13. Another was a young boy who was skipping school. It didn't seem to matter to this person whatsoever that these were young, impressionable kids. Again, the police told her to just look the other way. They weren't going to investigate, especially with anonymous sources. So Celia convinced some of them to come forward. But by that point, there were many she was unable to locate. Celia stated to the Daily Mail, some of them by that stage weren't contactable for all too obvious reasons. By January of 2008, Celia met another woman on the site. Kat was a mom of two from Wolverhampton. The two quickly struck up an online friendship. At the time, Kat was struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. But after learning about this mystery nurse who was pushing people to kill themselves, Kat wanted to help Celia uncover the true identity of this online persona. Maybe if they could do that, police could do something about it. So she and Celia decided to set up a sting operation. Kat would be the bait and she would take the conversation out of the chat room and into her email inbox. She would then gain the trust of this person and learn everything she could. Hopefully she and Celia would be able to figure out who Lee Dow slash Cammy slash Falcon Girl really was. Ain't nothing like two moms on a mission. While talking to Kat, this person said her name was Cammy, and she was a 20-something Chinese-American nurse. Eventually, Kat was able to gain enough trust that Cammy sent her a photo. It was a family one with Cammy, her husband, and a couple of kids. But it was strange because the woman in the photo appeared to be much older than 20-anything and didn't look at all Chinese. She appeared to be a middle-aged white woman. And then something even more strange happened. 
While Kat was chatting with Cammie, she turned her webcam on for a brief moment. And she wasn't a she. She was very much a man. And more precisely, she was the man in the family photo. Kat was able to take a quick photo of the man on her computer screen. Celia Cat and other members of the group got to work to uncover Cammie's true identity. And it didn't take long. By February of 2008, so a month after Kat captured him on webcam, they knew that Lee Cammie Falcon Girl Dow was actually 46-year-old William Francis Melcher Dinkle. And the woman he claimed to be in the photo? Well, that was actually his wife. But that wasn't all. They knew his email addresses and his IP address, which was registered to his home in Minnesota. And they also knew that Melchert Dinkle was actually working as a nurse. Celia Blay gathered all the information she had obtained over the years and sent it to the FBI. And absolutely nothing happened. I just want to point out here that this was a month before Nadia Kajuji took her own life after chatting online with who we now know to have been Melchert Dinkle. Celia was desperate to get authorities to act, so she thought of another plan. You see, through her horsewhip business, Celia met people from all over, and she just so happened to have a customer who lived in Minnesota. If she couldn't get authorities to take her seriously all the way from the UK, maybe her customer in Minnesota could. After all, that's where Melchert Dingle currently lived. Her customer reached out to her local sheriff's department, who passed the information along to the Minnesota Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. They got in contact with Celia and asked her to send everything she had. And so she did. Investigators began to go through the mountain of evidence Celia provided and to do a little digging of their own. As they began their investigation, according to Web of Lies, in June of 2008, a woman by the name of Elaine Drybro reached out to Celia. Elaine was the mother of 32-year-old Mark Drybro. She explained to Celia that her son had committed suicide after speaking to Lee Dow online. This had happened all the way back in 2005, before Celia had ever gotten into the chat rooms. In fact, it would later be discovered that William Melkert Dinkle had been in those rooms trying to convince people to hang themselves since about 2001. And Mark's story was absolutely heartbreaking. According to GQ magazine, Mark Drybro was once an outgoing and fun kid. He went to college in Coventry, England and studied computer engineering. He was excited with his whole life ahead of him. Not only would he be starting a new career, but he also found himself a girlfriend. She and Mark dated for about a year before she came down with the viral illness. Soon after, Mark got sick too, and while his girlfriend recovered, Mark never really did. His physical and mental health declined. Mark would later describe the illness as feeling like having flu all the time. He was tired and it was difficult for him to even get out of bed. Though he was never formally diagnosed, Mark believed he had developed chronic fatigue syndrome. Eventually, he spent more and more time in bed, unable to function. His girlfriend moved on with her life and Mark stopped going to classes. And then he dropped out of school altogether. Over the next 10 years, he struggled to find his place in life. He had a house that was left to him by his great uncle. 
but he was unable to keep a job. He went through bouts of depression and at times would refuse to take his medication, which would cause him to spiral into a very dark place. In July of 2005, he posted in an online forum, asking, quote, Does anyone have details of hanging methods where there isn't access to anything high up to tie the rope to? I've read that people have taken their own lives in jail. Anybody know of innovative methods, the ones you don't get to read in the paper? Lee Dow responded with three words. Check your email. When Mark opened his email, there were very detailed instructions about the most effective methods to commit suicide by hanging, down to which rope and not to use, which I'm not going to get into for obvious reasons. Mark and Melchert Dinkle, posing as Lee Dow, continued to message back and forth. According to court documents, Mark confided in Lee Dow that he felt trapped between a life so miserable he wanted to end it and the fear, uncertainty, and even occasional bouts of hope for a better future that prevented him from following through on his suicidal thoughts. In further conversations, Mark described practicing the hanging method Lee Dow, a.k.l. Melchert Dinkle, had taught him, but he was unable to fully commit and worried about his parents seeing the marks on his neck. Melchert Dinkle acted as if he was compassionate and told Mark he related to his misery. He assured him that he could provide practical advice due to his medical experience. At one point, he wrote to Mark that he hoped, quote, to be a friend at the end for you as you are for me. On July 23, 2005, Mark sent his final message to who he thought was his friend, Lee Dow. It read, I keep holding on to the hope that things might change. I'm dying, but slowly, day by day. I don't want to waste anyone's time. If you want someone who's suicidal, I'm just not there yet. You either do it or you don't, and I don't and haven't. I'm used to being alone. Sorry, I admire your courage. I wish I had it. Four days later, Mark Drybro did take his own life. Mark's older sister Carol had driven down from Leeds to visit her family. They had dinner that night and she and Mark made plans to meet up at a nearby park the next day, which would have been July 27, 2005. That morning, Carol confirmed the plan with Mark. But by four that afternoon, Mark still hadn't made it to the park. She hopped in the car and drove to his house. She knocked on the door, but he didn't answer, so she made her way inside. Once inside, she found a note on the inside door written in large block letters in Mark's handwriting. Do not go upstairs. Go home. Hand this note to the police. Carol bolted upstairs anyway and forced her way into her brother's bedroom door. And that's when she found Mark. She tried desperately to save her baby brother. Carol held him up as she called for help. She stayed there with him, supporting his weight as she waited for paramedics. But it was too late. Mark Drybro was pronounced dead at the scene. His family was devastated. According again to GQ, Carol went back to her brother's house and logged onto his computer. She found out about the chat rooms and that nurse named Lee Dow. She read all the messages and learned of the suicide pact. The final message Lee Dow had sent to Mark was via email. It said, Are you all right, Mark? But Melchert Dinkle, a.k.a. Lee Dow, knew Mark wasn't all right. 
In fact, he had gone on to tell others all about the man he had watched hang himself via webcam. Although it has never been proven, many of the details Melchert Dinkle provided to others he had chatted with over the years lined up with the details of Mark's death. At one point during an email exchange with Kat, Melchert Dinkle told Kat that the man he had watched die was 32, the same age as Mark, and that he had watched him so he wouldn't be alone. And Kat wasn't the only person Melchert Dinkle told this story to either, although he would later deny ever watching anyone die. And further, at Mark's autopsy, the medical examiner noted the exact positioning of the ligature marks. Those marks, along with the type of rope and the way the knot was tied, matched up perfectly with the instructions given by Melchert Dinkle. After Mark's sister and mother learned about who they believed was Lee Dow, they too went to authorities but were turned away. And Melchert Dinkle was free to pose online as Lee Dow, Cammie, and Falcon Girl. Investigators soon learned that over the years, he had talked to countless individuals, some of whom had gone on to commit suicide like Nadia Kajuji and Mark Dryborough. Melchert Dinkle spent hours upon hours on the forum preying on desperate and depressed people with those three words, check your email. He always took the conversation out of the public eye and into a private inbox, so just how many people he had contact with was hard to track. By the late spring of 2008, investigators with the Minnesota Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force were hot on Melchert Dinkle's trail, thanks to Celia and Kat. Sergeant Bill Hyder was leading the charge, but with an investigation spanning several countries over several years, Getting it all together was going to take some time. By January of 2009, Sergeant Hyder believed he had gathered enough. It was time to go and talk to Melchert Dinkle. He and Commander Neil Nelson went for a little knock and talk. William Melchert Dinkle answered the door, and just as soon as the men got done introducing themselves as members of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, Melchert Dinkle said he knew why they were there at first stating that since he and his wife were nurses, they had talked to people online that had issues with depression and suicide. The officers, of course, asked if this was a discussion his wife should be in on. And without skipping a beat, Dinkle flipped the script at cyclic speed and said that actually his wife had nothing to do with it. In fact, no one else in the house did for that matter either, and he was the only one they should be talking to. If you remember way on back, when first contacted by police in Ottawa, he tried to blame his online activity on his daughter. Now it was his wife. Or so it was until the police called his bluff. He attempted to explain his activity in the forums, stating, It starts like this. So-and-so goes online, and they said they're looking for a method. And I just discussed with some people about why do you want to do this, and what is going on in your life. You know, stuff like that. I mean, after all, he was a caring nurse, and according to Melchert Dinkle, if people had questions, he would always try to discourage them from committing suicide first. But if he couldn't, he would answer the questions, because, you know, he had knowledge as a nurse. He really wanted to make sure they knew he was a nurse. One detective asked point blank, do you talk them out of it? Melchert Dinkle responded, a lot of times, yeah. Other times, what can you do? There's not much you can do. He further explained, 
People would come online and say they tried this and this before, and they botched it up and ended up, you know, in a hospital, mental health units, and they were always looking for more effective ways. The detective responded, You were helping to decide whether they would live or die. Yeah, Melcher Dinkle responded. Detectives confronted him with the suicide packs, the anonymous names, and the people that he had been in contact with. And Melcher Dinkle gave it all up. Well, almost all of it. Admitting that he was in fact Cammie and Falcon Girl and Lee Dow, he admitted to the suicide packs and how he had attempted to get people to hang themselves on webcam so he could watch. Of course, only admitting that he had tried, not that it had ever worked. As they continued to talk, Melcher Dinkle told a sob story about how he had originally gone into the suicide chat rooms to help and advocate for people, but as time went on, his advocacy turned into something sinister. He became fascinated with strangulation deaths and had an obsession with the act of hanging. And while he couldn't give an accurate number, he thought that over the years he had encouraged dozens of people to kill themselves, entered suicide packs with 10 to 11 individuals, and had assisted around five people who he believed had gone on to actually kill themselves. After giving the sob story, he eventually told investigators that he had done it all for, quote, the thrill of the chase. After investigators had heard enough, they ended the interview and brought his wife into the room so he could tell her what he had done. In front of investigators, she appeared shocked and upset. But as time went on, for reasons unknown to anyone, she chose to stick by him. William Melchert Dinkle handed over his computer to police and it was a treasure trove of evidence. They found pictures of people hanging, multiple conversations about suicide, in which Dinkle was giving clear instructions, and an email from Nadia Kajuji. It read, Hi, Cammy. I thought I'd write you a quick note before I go. I'm feeling at peace now, and it makes me feel better knowing that I won't die alone now. I'm going through my computer files, deleting things I don't want people to find after I'm gone. I must say, I'm feeling a lot better now. I can talk to you. I am glad that things are going to end tonight. I'm feeling confident I want to go now, but there are too many people about. My cell phone number is, and then she gave the cell phone number. If you try texting me on Monday and it doesn't go through, that means I jumped. The pain will be temporary, then it will be over. Thank you again, Nadia. Once the Minnesota Nursing Licensing Board caught wind of the story, William Francis Melchert Dinkle's nursing license was revoked. As it turned out, this wasn't the first time the licensing board had looked at Melchert Dinkle. He'd been in trouble for violations before, although none of them were quite this serious. He just happened to be a crappy nurse and gave his patients subpar care. We all saw that coming, didn't we? After his license was revoked, Melcher Dinkle spoke to the Associated Press, stating he didn't think he was going to be charged. He said, nothing is going to come of it. I've moved on with my life, and that's it. But that wasn't it. Nearly two years to the day Nadia's body was found, on April 23, 2010, William Francis Melchert Dinkle was charged in Minnesota, with two counts of aiding and abetting suicide, which is a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. With two counts, Melcher Dinkle was facing 30 years. 
one count, of course, for Nadia and the other for Mark. He waived his right to a jury trial and opted to have his case heard by a judge. In March of 2011, Melchert Dinkle was convicted on both counts, but only sentenced to 360 days in jail. He, of course, appealed and his jail sentence was suspended pending that appeal. His case was taken all the way up to the Minnesota Supreme Court. His attorneys arguing that while what Melchert Dinkle had done was reprehensible, it was protected under the First Amendment. They argued that the statute Dinkle had been convicted of violating itself was unconstitutional. That statute, of course, being Minnesota's aiding suicide statute. The statute reads, to be guilty of violating Minnesota Statute 609.215, one must intentionally and directly advise, encourage, or assist the taking of another's life, and that person must in fact take his or her own life. And when the advice, encouragement, or assisting is done through speech alone, such speech must eminently incite the suicide and be likely to have that effect. The Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that the part of the state law that made it illegal to advise or encourage suicides was an unconstitutionally broad restriction on free speech. However, the justices upheld a part of the law that makes it a crime to assist in someone's suicide. And further, the ruling said speech alone can be used to assist or enable a suicide if it is narrowly targeted to one person and provides that person with what is needed to carry out the act. William Melchert Dinkle's convictions were overturned, and the case bounced back to the district court. In September of 2014, Rice County District Judge Thomas Newville ruled that the state proved that William Melchert Dinkle assisted in the suicide of Mark Drybro, but he said the state failed to prove Melchert Dinkle's assistance directly caused Nadia Kajuji's suicide and found him guilty on a lesser charge of attempting to help her end her life. The following month, so that brings us to October of 2014, Melchert Dinkle was sentenced to 360 days in jail under a work release program. The Star Tribune reported on the proceedings. Melchert Dinkle was fined $18,000 in order to pay about $30,000 in restitution. The judge ordered that the jail time include two-day stints each March and July over the next 10 years to mark the months in which his victims died. During the proceeding, Judge Newville spoke directly to Melcher Dinkle, stating, The court finds that you were stalking and soliciting people to die. You knew it was wrong. By February of 2015, William Melcher Dinkle had completed his hard time and was released on probation. It's believed he's currently living somewhere out there in Minnesota. For the families of Nadia Kajuji and Mark Dryborough, life will never be the same. For the rest of ever, they'll be plagued with the what-ifs. What if Nadia and Mark would have come into contact with Celia Blay in that chat instead? What if police had taken Celia seriously the first time? Would Nadia still be here? Where would she be practicing law? What if they had done this differently or that differently? Would Mark have been able to overcome his illness? Would he be an IT guy at some fancy corporation? How many people actually died at William Melchert Dinkle's direction? Will he do it again? All these questions that we'll never know the answers. 
Now the families can only do their best to pick up the pieces and try to move forward helping others. Mark Kajuji has gone on to become an advocate for suicide prevention, saving countless lives in the process, but he still misses his sister. Mark is an advocate with the suicide prevention group Your Life Counts in Canada. Mark spoke to the Ottawa Citizen and stated, It doesn't change anything. I still have lost my sister, but at least there's some sort of follow-up and a way to highlight the issue because there isn't a voice for the 4,000 other families in Canada that go through this. Mark Kajuji went on to say, It's tough because I wish there were better checks and balances in the system such as the medicine she was on, the different things the school could have done, or the Privacy Act, or internet regulations, so I don't direct it at any one person or outlet. I do feel that it's an overall umbrella of an issue that needs to be addressed. According to the International Association for Suicide Prevention, an estimated 700,000 people die by suicide worldwide each year, and countless others are struggling to stay. While we won't be able to solve a worldwide issue in the next five minutes of this podcast or even tomorrow or next year, we can all do our part in our own communities with our own friends and family and our own children. Know the signs. If someone in your life is struggling, reach out. Sometimes all it takes is a listening ear and an encouraging word, or maybe just a hug. And if you're listening right now and you happen to be the one that is struggling, Please stay. This world is a better place with you in it. You should stick around to find out who you are capable of becoming. You just might surprise yourself. Stay because you need to see the next sunrise and all the ones that follow. And you really need to know who's going to win Super Bowl 99. Stay because your cat needs you. You never know. You might need to hang around because they could make a sequel to your favorite movie. It might suck, but who are we kidding? You're going to want to watch it anyway. Just stay because we need you here. In the meantime, reach out to a trusted friend, a pastor, call your mama, your friend from third grade, message your favorite podcast host. And if any of these aren't options, you can always contact the Crisis Lifeline. In the U.S., dial 988 or go to 988lifeline.org. There are resources available and someone to talk to 24-7. I'll be sure to link that as well as other resources in the show notes. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on today's case, so be sure to head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast and let me know what you think. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.